All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are now going to skip chapter 18 because chapter 18 is just a bunch of hallelujah, hallelujah, the beast of Babylon, great Babylon the great, the whore of Babylon is defeated. I'm going to refer back to a couple of those verses as we go through this, which is chapter 19. We're going to go over two suppers, the marriage supper of the lamb. That's the good one. We're all invited to that one. This is the bad one, the great supper of God. You don't want to go to that one. We'll see why in a minute. Before I get started, I've got I to give you some uh, kind of a logical tree of where I'm going here because I'm going to try to show that the marriage supper of the Lamb is not at the end of time, which is what most people assume, but rather it's uh, already occurred at the, at the first advent, not at the second advent. Now, I realize that that is, might be a little shocking, but... The, well, no, because we're already here. We're getting to celebrate it. We've already got to celebrate. I, I'll show you why. I mean, if we get if something that we have to wait two thousand plus years in the future uh, is is something that we have to long for and wait for, if we've already got it, it seems like that would be better, not worse. But anyway, here's how I'm going to go. Chapter I'm going to try to show that chapter eleven and chapter nineteen are parallel to each other. I'm going to do that by showing seven common phrases in the two chapters. I'm going to show you that chapter eleven is at the beginning of the new covenant era. Therefore, since the, chapter 11 is parallel with chapter 19, therefore chapter 19 is at the beginning of the New Covenant, and the marriage supper of the Lamb is in chapter 19. Therefore, the marriage supper is at the beginning of the New Covenant. All right, so let's, first of all, I need to show that chapter 11 is at the beginning of the New Covenant. Revelation eleven seventeen says this, saying, we, this is the 24 elders speaking, we give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. So the reign of Christ has already started back in chapter 17. In my view, the book of Revelation is all about the new covenant, the beginning of the kingdom of God, which starts at the first advent, runs all the way through the second advent, and all the way into the final state. Revelation eleven nineteen a says, Then the temple of God in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant appeared in His temple. The temple of God is open. That means that people have confident access into the throne room of God. When did that happen? Has that already happened? Do you have confident access into the throne room of God? Yes. Yeah, so it's already happened, right? So chapter 11 is clearly talking about something that's already happened. Now, since chapter 11 and 19 are parallel... My, and the marriage supper of the Lamb is in chapter 19. I'm going to try to show you that the marriage supper of the Lamb is something that's already happened. Now, here are the parallel passages. Chapter 11, verse 15, we read loud voices in heaven. Chapter 19, verse 1, loud voice of a vast, vast multitude in heaven. That's pretty close. Chapter 11, verse 15, He will reign forever and ever, John says. Verse 6 in chapter 19 says, Our Lord God the Almighty reigns. That's pretty close. In chapter 11, verse 17, your great power is written there. Chapter 19, verse 1, power belongs to our God. Chapter 11, verse 16, the 24 elders worship God. Chapter 19, verse 4, the 24 elders worship God. Chapter 11, verse 18, give the reward to your servants. Chapter 19, verse 2, God has avenged the blood of his servants. So the reward to your servants, it means that they have been avenged, that justice has been given for the blood that, that was shed for them, by, uh, shed by them. Their blood was shed. All right, we go now to chapter 11, verse 18. Servants and those who fear your name, both small and great, 
is mentioned by John, chapter 19, verse 5. Servants and the ones who fear him, both small and great. Chapter 11, verse 19, rumblings and peals of thunder are mentioned. Chapter 19, verse 6, rumblings of loud thunder. Well, I would think that by looking at that chart there, that we see that those two chapters are pretty much talking about the same thing. So let's start now in Revelation 19.1. For these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now, after what things? Well, in chapter 17 and 18, we had the destruction of a whore of Babylon riding on the sea beast, the Roman Empire. And in chapter 18, which I'm skipping because it's relatively easy and we've got to get through this. But in Revelation 18.8, we have a bunch of praise. Praise God, praise God, because the whore of Babylon has been burnt up. And here's a sample verse, Revelation 18.8. For this reason, her plagues will come in one day, death and grief and famine. She will be burned up with fire because the Lord God who judges her is mighty. And that's exactly what happened to the whore of Babylon, apostate evil Israel. She was burned up with fire in AD 70. Now, so that's the these things that John had heard as he was watching it, looking at the vision. And then these, he, after these things, he heard a great multitude in heaven. Now, who's the great multitude in heaven? That would be Christians. We'll see Christians show up in a minute. And also angels in heaven. And they're all shouting, hallelujah. Now, the question I have to ask you is this. Is it all right, is it all right to say, praise God, the bad guys have gone down? Yes. Yes. Yeah, no problem with that? Good. I agree. And they're doing it. Now they're saying, hallelujah, the, the whore of Babylon has been burnt up, stripped naked, and eaten by the sea beast. Hallelujah. So let's make an application real quick. When Xi Jinping in China goes down, he, of course, is persecuting the church terribly. I've just had two calls from China about and find out what they're doing over there to the church in China, and it's disgusting. It's terrible. When he finally gets what's coming to him, can I say hallelujah? Yes, yeah, that's good. I'm glad you're not super spiritual. And, yeah, well, good. All right. Go to verse Revelation 19.2. Because his judgments are true and righteous, this is why they're praising God. For he has judged the great harlot, that's the whore of Babylon, apostate Israel, who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. Now, how has the great harlot, apostate Israel, been corrupting the earth, and the earth then back then was the Roman Empire, how was she corrupting the earth with her immorality? Remember, 7% of the Roman Empire was Jewish, at least the cities. There were synagogues everywhere. Remember, in, at Pentecost, there were Jews from every nation on the earth who showed up at Pentecost. There were synagogues everywhere in the Roman Empire. And what were they teaching? Let's say you got a pagan Roman. His pagan religion is dying. It is said that the Romans were afraid to live. Excuse me, they were afraid of dying and tired of living. And so they go into a synagogue. Well, these people got the truth about the one true God. They go into the synagogue. What do they hear? Yeah, his name is Yahweh. Now, there was this fake guy, this false Messiah who showed up. We killed him. We took care of that fake religion. And now he's burning in the middle of hell in a vat of excrement that's bubbling up and, and consuming him forever and ever. That's the kind of religion that was being taught. Israel was corrupting the, the world, the known world at that time with her immoral, demonic religion. All right, so, but that's been judged. And so that's why we can say hallelujah. And he, 
that's uh, Jesus, has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. Now, this venge, this taking, this performing justice for the people who've been killed by apostate Israel, remember Israel who's killed the apostles, who's killed the prophets from Abel to Zechariah? There's no place a, a prophet can die except in Jerusalem, because that's where they die, because they killed so many prophets. Jesus talked about this in the Olivet Discourse, which is talking about the same thing that the book of Revelation was talking about, which is the destruction of, of the, the city and the country that murdered Jesus and chased and murdered his apostles. Jesus said in Luke 21, verse 22a, because these are days of vengeance. These are days in which God's servants are going to have their blood avenged. Because they were persecuted terribly. The church was persecuted terribly. And God's going to take care of that. There is justice. Application for today is we are probably heading into a period of persecution in this country. As Steve likes to put it, soft persecution as opposed to China where it's hard persecution. Well, if, I hope it doesn't happen, but it probably is going to happen. Sooner or later, those who persecute the church, justice is going to fall on their head. Because God is a God of justice. He will not let us go down. He will protect us no matter what, no matter how bad it gets. All right, let's go to verses 3 and 4, Revelation 19. And a second time they said, that's the great multitude in heaven, the saints, the angels. They said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Now, of course, that's the whore rises up forever and ever. That's apostate Israel forever and ever. Israel's gone forever. You know, there's a lot of theologies and eschatologies that say that Israel is the focus of it all, that we all need to look at a revived Israel and a revived Roman Empire, then there's the battle up there in the future. No, the battle's over. The battle's over. So the smoke rises up forever and ever. I mean, that's total judgment. That's it. That's the second hallelujah. Verse 4, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. That's the third hallelujah. Remember the 24 elders standing for Old Testament Israel, New Testament Israel, 12 and 12, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, and the four creatures standing for all of natural creation. So we've got the whole natural creation. We've got all the people of God. We've got the saints in heaven. We've got the angels in heaven. Everybody saying, hallelujah. Why? Because the whore of Babylon is Kaputsky, which happened in AD 70. Now, dropping back again in Revelation 18, verse 20, we see the same rejoicing going on. Rejoice over her, heaven, and you saints, apostles, and prophets, because God has pronounced on her, that's Babylon the Great, apostate Israel, the judgment she passed on you. So, we can rejoice because of judgment. Verse 5, and a voice came from the throne, that's probably a voice from one of the 24 elders, saying, give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him small and great. The same thing, praising because justice and judgment has happened. Now let me ask you this. I've read a lot of Calvinist theologians and they always say, well now, can we praise God when we look at all the people in hell? Can you praise God for that? Ooh. You can do that? Can you praise God that there's a bunch of people in hell? You're having trouble, aren't you? Yeah, it's hard. But God did that. God did that. He made a hell because he is a just God, and there are people. I remember Greg was telling me, I like to watch airplane crash videos. I don't know why, I guess, because I've spent most of my life on airplanes. <laughs> but Greg, is he? I don't know if he's here. He told me last time that he was watching a video about the worst airplane crash in history, which I've seen, too. I, knew, I know about that crash. And, 
as one guy was standing on the wing, there were a few people survived it, 580 people didn't, and it was a huge ball of fire, and people were burning to death in the cabin. And he turned around and looked, and instead of the people saying, God, help me, they were cursing God. Isn't that right? If I got it right? They were cursing God as they went to their death, as they went to hell. There's nobody in hell doesn't want to be there. But anyway, we give praise because the judgment has come. All right, verses 6 and 8, 6, 7, and 8 in Revelation 19. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of great mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah. That's the same people in the multitude as the angels and the Christians in heaven. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Now, when is he reigning? Is he reigning 2,000 years in the future? Or is he reigning now at the time that this is happening? Remember, the whore of Babylon has already gone down. It's raining now. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, this is not the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is just the marriage of the Lamb. When has it happened? When did we become the bride of Christ? Dwayne? Yeah, well, actually, people debate this, but let me ask it to you this way. Did we become the bride of Christ in the first century or the last century of human time? Are we the bride of Christ now? So it had to have happened sometime in the past, right? Some people say the resurrection. Some people say the crucifixion. Some people say Pentecost. But, you know, first century, we're the bride of Christ. So the marriage of the Lamb has come. Notice it's already happened. His bride has made herself ready. This is not talking about the future. It's talking about the past, right? Verse 8. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. That's the bride. Bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now this is a little side rabbit trail here, but notice that these fine linen, this fine linen that is on the saints, the saints are not in heaven naked, are they? They got fine linen. They got good works. When Dwayne goes to heaven, I assume he will. <laughs> he will be dressed in fine linen. He will have good works. It is impossible to go to heaven without good works. But did you go to heaven because of your good works? No, no because the linen was given to you. All the good works that you do are given to you by Jesus. You all know that. All right. So here's my, here's, I've already given you one argument that the marriage supper of the Lamb occurred in the first century because chapter 11 and chapter 19 are so closely related. But also here, the marriage of the Lamb has already come. The marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. We have a marriage of the Lamb. Now, if you go to a wedding today, usually you have a meal, you know, reception. Um, you go to the wedding, do you wait 2,000 years to have to eat the meal? <laughs> All right, so that's my second argument. Go to verse 9. Then he, that's Jesus, said, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now the point here about being invited is you don't go to the marriage supper of the Lamb unless you're invited. Irresistible grace, God calls you. No man comes to the Father unless the Father calls him. Yeah. All right, so you're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he, or the NIV says, an angel, said to me, he said to John, these are the true words of God. Now, just to, to emphasize the point that we are the bride of Christ, look at Ephesians 5.23. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Now, believe it or not, 
there are some people who say that we're not the bride of Christ. I had a guy tell me this 30 years ago, and I went, what? And I looked at it, sure enough, it doesn't directly say that we're the bride of Christ. However, a four-year-old, chronologically, a four-year-old kid who has been saved one year can look at this and tell we're the bride of Christ because we got the husband is the wife. The analogy is Christ is the husband and the bride is the church, right? Now, a futurist commentary I read to who that I read who was trying to get out of the problem of the marriage supper happening so far in the future when the wedding happened so far in the past. He says that we are not married to Christ. Now we are only betrothed to him. But 2,000 years later we'll be married and then we'll have the marriage supper. And I thought, well, that's very clever. But I read this verse and it doesn't say, it doesn't say that the husband will be the head of the wife as Christ will be the head of the church. He says is. And it doesn't say the betrothal supper of the Lamb. It says the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay. We go, oh, now let's look at some problems with the futurist interpretation of the marriage supper. All right. Now, you could identify the marriage supper with communion and say, we've got communion, communion, communion. Jesus says, I will come back and eat, I will eat it with you in my kingdom. And then, so you can say that he was referring to the marriage supper in the future. And many, many people do that. And so, if we identify the marriage supper with the communion, which we don't have to do, by the way, because the Scripture never directly ties the Lord's Supper with the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's one thing that people kind of say all the time without proving it, but you look, there is no Scripture that ties it together. You can reason your way there, but there's no Scripture that directly says it. All right, so if we say we will eat it with Him physically, eat it with Him in His kingdom, and so we say that the marriage supper is the Lord's Supper at the end of time, we have problems. First of all, as I said earlier, marriage suppers are held at the time of the wedding, not 2,000 plus years later. But here's another practical problem. Jesus is in his body now, right? When he's in heaven, he has his physical body. So he's going to sit down at the table. How many billions of Christians are going to be there at the end of time? How are we going to sit down? That's going to be a real intimate meal, isn't it? Billions and billions of Christians sitting down with Jesus at the end of time. <laughs> I see you're still skeptical. All right, here's the problem with the preterist interpretation of the marriage supper. How is Jesus eating with Christians in communion, in a communion meal, Lord's Supper meal? Now, this is assuming that you identify the Lord's Supper with the marriage supper, which means that when Jesus says, I'll eat it with you in my kingdom, he's saying, hey, the kingdom of God is now. Remember, the kingdom is now and not yet when the kingdom of God is among you, so the kingdom of God's already started, so you're going to be eating with me every time you have communion. Well, the problem is, Jesus is not there physically to eat the communion with us, is he? Well, you can say that the scripture doesn't mean to say that he's physically eating it with, it, with us. It just means he's there as we eat, just as, um, where's my, let's see, where is it? I'm on, let me back up a minute. Yeah, I got it out of order. Let me go here. If you do equate the marriage supper with the Lord's Supper, Luke twenty two sixteen says, I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment of the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is here now already. So here, how do we refute this future implication that we won't eat it until 2,000 years plus in the future? Well, first of all, you could say that God ate with the Israelites spiritually. Uh, remember in Exodus twenty four eleven, the Israelite nobles saw him and they ate and drank. 
Moses took the elders of Israel. I, I can send you this in my uh, in an email. If you want to take pictures, I'll send you the whole schmear. Yeah, so you don't need to worry. <laughs> so Moses ate with the elders of Israel up on Mount Sinai. And it says the, they, well, they saw God. <laughs> they saw Yahweh. Yeah. Now, it doesn't say God was eating. God doesn't have a body, a mouth. He didn't eat. But they were, he, was, she, he was there while they were eating. Well, if you can say that, was God eating with the Israelites? Well, maybe, symbolically, maybe. Calvin said that Jesus eats with us spiritually at every meal with the real presence of the Lord's Supper, a view that I happen to hold to, that whenever, Je- whenever we eat the Lord's Supper, Jesus is with us, you know, spiritually. But if that's too spiritualized for you, I got this from that great preterist theologian, Stephen Edward Everett Ackerson. He pointed out to me the other day that Jesus ate with his disciples during the 40 days in the post-ascension period. Jesus rose again from the dead. He hung around on earth for 40 days. They were still having the Lord's Supper, right? And he was eating. So he ate it with them in the kingdom. So he says, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment of the kingdom of God. He was eating with him in the kingdom of God. So I think I can handle that problem about, from the preterist point of view, about interpreting communion. Now, what if you don't equate the marriage supper with the Lord's Supper? As I said, you don't have to do that because it doesn't say so in the Scripture. Well, then there's no problem. The marriage supper then becomes a symbol that first century Christians and later Christians are the bride of Christ. And that's what I think John was trying to say. Hey, you're the bride of Christ. He says it right there in verse 7. He says, the bride has come, participated in the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's just a symbol to say we're the bride of Christ. Because when you go to a wedding, you, go to, you eat the meal too. You go to a marriage supper. All right, let's go to verse 10. Then I fell at his feet. That's John fell at this an, the, an angel's feet to worship him. And he, the angel, said to him, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, I, I, I imagine you read that verse the way I read it for years. John is giving worship to the angel as a god. And the angel says, "Ah, don't worship me as a god. I'm just an angel. I'm a fellow servant of yours. I'm not God. Don't worship me as a god. But there's a little problem with that is why would John, who's receiving a revelation from Jesus, who's an apostle of Jesus Christ, why would he do some dumb New Age stunt like worshiping an angel? Wouldn't he have enough sense to know that you don't worship angels? So I read a commentator that asked me that, and I said, that's a good point. Why would he do that? Well, here's the answer to it, in my opinion. And again, this is a minor point, but I'll go, go, go through it with you. The word worship is proskuneo in Greek, and it can also mean not just worship a God, but it can also mean to give honor to somebody. Like, for example, if I give honor to Dwayne, it doesn't mean I'm thinking he's God. I'm just saying, I honor you. You know, I worship you. And we see that in Revelation 3.9, the word worship is used there. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. The King James uses worship. That's why I use the King James here. The worship here is worship done before the feet of the church at Philadelphia, before the Philadelphians' feet. And of course, Jesus is not going to make the synagogue of Satan go and worship the Philadelphians like the Philadelphians are God, are they? That just means give them honor. So if you say that, then what is John, what is the angel saying? Look, he says, you are giving me so much honor 
you giving me honor. You're not worshiping me as God, but you're giving me honor. But stand up. You don't need to do that. I'm a fellow servant. You're a fellow servant. We're equal. We're fellows. We're fellow slaves of Christ and of your brethren. So stand up and quit putting yourself so low. You are wor- you're every bit as worthy as an angel who's serving God. Again, that's a minor point, but I think it's... Uh, it, the application of that is this, is we need to not be so humble that we're too humble. You, ever, you know people that are too humble? Yeah. They don't know who they are in Christ. You can't be too humble. You can be humble in your flesh, but don't be humble about what God has given you. All right, we go to Revelation 19.11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Now, this is the verse that most people say, this is Jesus coming back at the end of time. And I don't think it is. However, if it does mean that, it doesn't mess up my interpretation of the book of Revelation in general. Because we're getting near the end of the book, and we're going to start getting into some future things that happen. And again, because I'm not a hyper-preterist, I'm not a heretic, I believe that Jesus is coming back at the end of time, Acts chapter 1, just as you saw him go up in heaven, which was physically, you're going to see him come back to earth. So he's coming back. 1 Thessalonians 4, when he comes back, you'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. He's coming back physically. But here, I think he's talking about something different. He's riding a white horse. A white horse, of course, is a typical symbol of a general Riding a white horse is a military symbol. He's called faithful and true, so that's obviously Jesus. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Now here we're going to get into a, a problem of interpretation. Is this waging war that Jesus does? Is it spiritual warfare that he does with a sword out of his mouth? Or is it physical where he slashes up people like a, in a war? Lots and lots of different opinions come out of that. Lots of, which I'm not going to get into, but there's a lot of controversy that, that arises out of that. Well, let's see where this idea of judging and waged war comes from. Let's look at Isaiah 11.4. Now, in Isaiah 11, Isaiah is talking about a, a shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse, a righteous shoot. And that's, obviously, everybody agrees with that. That's talking about Jesus the Messiah. Okay? Now, this is what Isaiah says about Jesus the Messiah. He, the Messiah, will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. I've got it color-coded here, just like John says in Revelation 19, Jesus judges. Isaiah 11, 4, he judges the poor righteously. Remember we said in a previous session that judge can mean positive things as well as negative. Give judgment to somebody. Well, here it's positive. He will judge the poor righteously. He will strike the land, just like John said in Revelation 19, that the rider on the white horse, Jesus wages war. Well, here he strikes the land, and he will kill the wicked. Okay, but the question is: Is that talking about physically killing people, Jesus the Messiah, or is it talking about his words killing his opponents? He will strike the land with discipline from his mouth. He will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Now, you could say the command from his mouth and his lips is he's telling his generals, go out there and kill people physically. You could do that. But I think because the sword coming out of the mouth, which we'll see in just a minute, the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, that is probably talking about the Word of God. Okay? 
So let's go to Revelation 19, verses 12 and 13. His eyes are a flame of fire. Revelation 1.14 said the same thing about Jesus. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. What does that mean? you got eyes like a flame of fire. Yeah, it means you can see and you can judge, basically. All right. On his head are many diadems, that's crowns, that shows he's a, he's a king. He has a name written on him, and the name is called the Word of God. It doesn't say where the name is written, I assume it's written on his forehead. The Word of God, and again, the idea of Word of God, the sword in his mouth. Alright, and nobody knows that name except himself. Now, John wrote the book of John. John chapter 1, verse 1. What does it say? And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So did John know the Word of God? Did he know Jesus' name? He wrote John 1, 1, didn't he? He obviously knew Jesus' name. But here it says, no one knows the name, the Word of God, except Jesus himself. That's a problem, right? Maybe. Why do you say maybe? Unless there's a more personal name, if I can say it that way. Well... Well, well, you'd have, to, you'd have to assume that the name is not the Word of God here. He has a name written on his head, and his name is called the Word of God. It sounds like the name is the Word of God. Now, you're right. It might be a different name. But I think, I think a better way to fix this or to solve this apparent contradiction is that there, this, and I got this from a theologian I read, that there was a Hebrew expression where you, when you use the term know, it meant the sense of you possess something. And then when it got translated into the Greek, the Greek has that connotation. For example, if, if you're a college class and I'm teaching you and I find a, a cell phone up here and I say, whose cell phone is this? And let's say it's Dwayne's cell phone. He says, I acknowledge that this is my cell phone. I know this is my cell phone. I, can, I know it. It's mine. I'm, I'm familiar with it. And by doing that, he acknowledges that he, the cell phone is his. He possesses the cell phone. And so the idea here is that Jesus is the only one who can possess this name. He is the only one who can have the name Word of God because He is King of kings, Lord of lords. Nobody else can have this name. Amen. It's unique to Him. Yes, sir? I just had a question. Is it possible that that could also mean no as in understand, meaning God often uses His name as a description of who He is. And so He is the only to fully and truly understand, that's, yeah, that's, that's good. It could very well be that. So again, the diadems, the fact that nobody knows the name except himself, it's all, except himself, is all meant to show the kingship of Christ. Now, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Now, the commentator split on this too. Whose blood is it? Is this the blood that he shed on the cross for the purchase of souls from mankind? Or is it the blood that he sheds in warfare? I'll leave that question open for right now. Let me mention also, he has another name in this chapter. We'll get here in a minute. Verse 16, he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, the King of kings and Lord of lords. I'm assuming that on his robe, he had the name written right here on the robe, and the robe was on his thigh. It wasn't written on his thigh, then on his robe too. It was just one writing on the robe. That's what John saw in his vision, I think. But the point is, King of kings, Lord of lords, name no one knows except himself. He has a diadem. He's faithful and true. 
This is Jesus we're talking about here. The awesome, awesome Jesus. We go to verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now who are the armies who are in heaven here? You should be able to figure this out just from the verse. Who are the armies? Who? Angels. Uh, yeah, except there's one problem with that. It usually is. Usually when you see armies in heaven, the host of God is usually angels. But here we see they're clothed in fine linen. And if you recall back in verse 8, the bride was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. All right, so these... We're afraid to say any answers. We're afraid to say anything anymore. Yeah, I've had that happen to me before too. That happened to me when I was in law school. We were scared to death to say anything. As soon as you say it, your head got chopped off. <laughs> All right, so uh, these are the armies in heaven. Now, remember now, Jesus is on the white horse. He's got the armies in heaven. Again, we're trying to figure out, well, what's, what kind of battle is he going to be fighting? Is he going to be fighting a spiritual battle or a physical battle? And I don't think this is an easy question, All right. All right, let's go to verse 15, Revelation 19. From his mouth comes a short sword. So that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Now there's three images here, mouth, sword in the mouth, rod of iron, and winepress of the wrath of God. So I'm going to take them one by one. First of all, let's take the sword in his mouth. That, let's go to Revelation 1.16. He had seven stars in his right hand, that's Jesus. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth. And then in Revelation 2.16, Therefore repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So the idea is a common idea in John is the word coming from Jesus' mouth. And of course our familiar verse in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. So there, that imagery tends to make you think that Jesus is conquering the word with his word, with the gospel. Also, remember, who's in heaven following along, armies in heaven clothed in white linen? Who's with him? Saints. saints. And what are the saints doing? They're spreading the gospel with his word, right? Well, that would be so easy, except we still got problems. We go to the next, next symbol in this verse. Jesus will rule them. That's the nations, the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Before we talk about what the rod of iron is, let's see that both Jesus rules and the church rules the nations with a rod of iron. Revelation 12, 5, And she gave birth to a son, that's Israel, a male son, that's Jesus, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. So Jesus is ruling all the nations here in Revelation 12. Revelation 2, the church rules. Verses 26 and 27 of Revelation 2, He who overcomes and he who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. The overcomer rules with a rod of iron. Of course, that's referring in this case to the, I forgot which church that is, one of the churches of Revelation. Uh, the members are going to rule with a rod of iron. We can apply that to the whole church. So Christians as well as Jesus rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now the question is, what does rod of iron mean? Well, that's one way you can take it. You can take it as a rod that Jesus takes to beat off the bad guys to protect the church. Now, if you take it that way, that means he's ruling the nations. There's still bad guys around, and so we're not in the final state yet. 
And in fact, a lot of pre-mill people do take that and say, see, Jesus has got, he's ruling the millennium, but he's got to keep the bad guys down to protect the church. Yeah, like whack-a-mole, yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, you could say that rod of iron refer, refers to the iron scepter that kings have. I mean, they sit on their throne and they have that. Like Steve's read somewhere that it was not a totally iron scepter. It was wood with an iron top, but it's the point is it's a scepter that symbolizes his rule. And so the rod of iron will be a symbol of rule, just like a diadem. A crown is a symbol of rule. In which case you could, from that, say that Jesus is ruling the nation spiritually. All right, let's go to the third symbol in verse 15. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. Now this symbol here is hard to take that spiritually. Trampling the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. We go back to Revelation 14, 18 through 20, and we read this. Yet another angel called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. That's Jesus. He had a sharp sickle. Use your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of grapes from the land's vineyard. Vineyard is a symbol, a common symbol of Israel. And, of course, earth can be translated land. Gather the cluster of grapes from the land's vineyard because its grapes have ripened. So the angel swung his sickle toward the earth and gathered the grapes from the land's vineyard. The angel had a sickle, and Jesus had a sickle. Which, you have to read the rest of chapter 14 to see that. But there were two sickles, Jesus' sickle and the angel's sickle, and they're harvesting. What are they doing with the grapes that they're harvesting? Remember, they're harvesting from the land. They're harvesting from the vineyard. That talks about Jews, apostate Jews. The angel swung his sickle and threw the grapes into the great wine press of God's wrath. And of course, grapes are a great symbol because when you stomp on grapes in a wine press, you got the purplish red juice that comes out, which stands for blood, okay? Then the press was trampled outside the city and blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles, that's 1,600 stadia. That means it was just not judgment done inside the city of Jerusalem, but also in the whole land of Israel, blood was everywhere, okay? So that is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So we've got a problem here. Is Jesus conquering the world with his word? Or is he, is he carrying out physical judgment on the apostate nation of Israel? Well, in my opinion, it's both. Because they're tied together. Once Jesus judges Israel, which is trying to stop the gospel at all costs, once he does that, that's going to free the gospel to go out much easier. And so the idea is both are happening. He's preaching the word, but they're going to be the Christians and Jesus are going to be able to preach the word because the great harlot has been judged, Babylon the Great. We go to verse 16. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We've already talked about that verse. That's who he is. We go to verse 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven. Picture here when it says birds, picture vultures, nasty birds. Come, assemble for the great supper of God. This is the supper you don't want to go to. So in this supper you get eaten. In the marriage supper of the Lamb you get to eat. This one you get eaten. 
so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men. That's the birds are doing this, the vultures, and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, both small and great. Now, this is a perfect description of the destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. Jesus predicted this actually in the Olivet Discourse, which was about the same event. He said, wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. That was probably a proverb. Now, I live in the country, and there's roadkill on our roads all the time. And these big, huge turkey buzzards come down, and they, they, I don't know, they almost attack the, the roadkill, and they sit there, and they eat, and your car comes right up on them, and they won't move, and you've got to blow your horn. And one time, a turkey buzzard almost went through our windshield. These things are nasty, because I've seen them up close. They are nasty. And um, the idea is Israel's dead. Jerusalem's dead. And the vultures are coming to eat the carcass of Jerusalem. Now, some people even go further than that and say that Greek word there, vulture, is in some translated, translations translated eagles. In fact, it's the same Greek word. It goes either way. If you look at a vulture, a vulture is an ugly eagle. If you look at an eagle, an eagle is a pretty vulture. <laughs> I'm serious. You look at them, you look at pictures, they look very similar. It's the same Greek word. All right. So the idea is the eagles would gather. What did the Romans have on their standards? Eagles. And so the Romans came into the land and gathered around the carcass of Israel. So the great supper of God is talking about a physical judgment on Israel. That's why going back a couple of verses, I think that the conquering of Jesus through the world is not only through the word of his mouth, but also he used the Roman armies to help out physically. We go to verses 19 and 21. And I saw the sea, be sea beast. Now I'm providing sea there, okay? It just says beast, but it's referring to the sea beast, which is the Roman Empire. And I saw the sea beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. He who sat on the horse was Jesus. His army is Christians. Verse 20, And the sea beast was seized and with him the false prophet. Who's the false prophet? The land beast, and the land beast is apostate Israel. We talked about that. You can prove that right here in verse 20. And the sea beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence. If you recall back in chapter 13 when you had the sea beast and the land beast, the land beast was trying to do miracles to get people to follow the sea beast. So this reference right here proves to us that the false prophet is the land beast. And by the way, that's not controversial. Everybody agrees with that futurist as well as preterist. So the sea beast and the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence but which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which bur burns with brimstone. The lake of fire is a common symbol for hell. Final judgment. A lot of people like to get concerned about when this happens. I don't worry about that too much because both of them are gone. And as we were driving here Steve was was making comments about all the nations that have persecuted Christians. The Romans are gone. The apostate Israel has gone. How about uh, Russia, the communists? They're gone. The Catholic Church used to persecute Christians terribly in the Middle Ages. They're still here, but they're not persecuting Christians anymore. Uh, Christians are still here. We're still here. We're going to be here because we are the victors. We win. The bad guys lose. Now, sure, some bad guys are going to pop up. Xi Jinping is going to lose. The Russian communists, they're gone. The Muslims, are they going to win? No, they're going to be gone. We're going to win. I don't care how bad it looks, we're going to win. 
So, amen. yeah, amen. So these two persecuting geopolitical entities, these world powers are thrown in the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest is not clear what rest is. Most people think it's not only the beast, but the rest means those who follow the beast. The beast, the two beasts. Those were killed with a sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. Now here again we have sword from the mouth. Is that talking about the word of God or is that talking about Jesus? I suspect it's both. All the birds will fill with their flesh. All right, what's some applications of this? Jesus wins, even though there's some ups and downs. I'm not saying there's not going to be persecution. Some of us are going to die. That's, that's, nobody denies that. But the long, the long and short of it is the church is a conquering church, a victorious church, and we are going to win. We're not going to lose. We praise God when the enemies of Christ are doomed. You've already said yes to that, even though that's a difficult thing. To me it is. We are the bride of Christ, and Jesus always takes care of his bride. Jesus is the perfect husband. He's going to let anything happen to his bride? No. And we're his bride. So nothing's going to happen to us. Yeah. So how should this affect the body of Christ today? Okay, well, somebody said one time that eschatology is not really eschatology. It's a philosophy of history. Everybody has a philosophy of history. Everybody has a view of the future. We all want to know what the future is, right? We go to the red hand lady if we're pagans. We read economic prognosticators, political prognosticators. I try not to read them because they're always wrong. But, it, but everybody wants to know the future. And we have to have a philosophy of future. And if, I, listen, I used to be a futurist now, so I know what that philosophy of future is. All hell's breaking loose and we're in trouble. And the only way we're going to get out of it is because the church is so shriveled up and so weak. I've got to get jerked out seven years before. Or if I'm not pre-trib, if I'm post-trib, I've got to go through all this garbage, this judgment that's happening in the book of Revelation, I got to go through it and the church, there's a great apostasy and all have fallen away. When Jesus comes back, will he find many believers on earth? Will he find faith on the earth? No, of course not, because the church has shrunkled down to a nothing. Well, that's the philosophy of history. And in my humble opinion, it stinks. Because I believe that the church is victorious. And all the way through the book of Revelation, we see a lot of judgments. But how many times do we see God has begun to reign? The temple is opened. When we get to the New Jerusalem, we got four gates on each side. They open so that all everybody from the four corners of the earth can flow into the New Jerusalem, into the church. We got an angel preaching from mid heaven. There's an eternal gospel to all the tribes and tongues and peoples and nations. It's all about victory. How many times does it say you've overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony? How many times does it talk about a kingdom? about dominion. How many times is Daniel 7, 13 and 14 quoted where the Son of Man goes up to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and receives a kingdom, an eternal kingdom. So, yeah, all of these details, you can get lost in details. In fact, I'm lost in them now. I've been doing this for, you know, <laughs> two months. But, but we need to not get lost in the forest. We need to see the forest instead of the trees sometimes, which is, is that we win. We win, and we need to have that because otherwise we're not going to get through the persecution that's coming. And it's coming, in my humble opinion. I can't predict the future any, any, you know, I can't. But I suspect if present trends continue, it's coming. And we got to have to have the attitude is, well, let it come. We're still going to win. I was just talking to somebody in China two, three nights ago. She's a dedicated Christian. And... She talks all about the. She she's learning to play Western hymns on the piano, and she reads A. W. Tozer, and she's gosh, she goes to prayer meetings all the time, and she, you know she's just 
on fire for the Lord. And somehow we can start talking about persecution, which when you talk to people in China who've been there as long as I have, you just don't talk about it anymore. You get used to it. It's part of the atmosphere. And she had not mentioned all what she had been going through for church. And all of a sudden she mentioned that she, they'd had to leave the city and they were meeting like criminals in the, in the mountainside. And they were trying to figure out a time they could come back into the city. They can't get any printed Bibles anymore. When I was over there, you could get a printed Bible. Not anymore. She said when she goes to her school, the, the kids say, the, the school says, fill out this form for your kid. What is your, relig- your preferred religion for your child? And if you put Christian down there, which she did, to be honest, they call you in for a little re-education session. No, you need to put down there none. You got to put down there none, you, you know. So, and I, I said something to her. I said, "Well, you know, you never talked about this too much." She said, "I'll be used to it." <laughs> she had a big deal because they're living victorious Christian lives. We're going to have to do that too, and we're not used to it. I, I say this: Listen, Chinese people used to being persecuted. We ain't, but it's coming, and and the Book of Revelation is a book of victory. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.